Hello, you're listening to Knight's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. I'm Holly Baker, and I'll be your host for this week's episode of Knight's History Cast. Brandon Nightingale talked to Alilia Bundles during the 2019 Dr. John T. Washington Lecture Series about her presentation titled, Raising Our Voices, Madam C.J. Walker's Legacy of Leadership, Activism, and Education. Alilia Bundles is the great-great-granddaughter of the famed Madam C.J. Walker, an African-American entrepreneur, philanthropist, and political activist. Have a listen to their conversation. My name is Brandon Nightingale. I'm a public history graduate student at the University of Central Florida. And today I have with me a very special guest. I'm pleased to be sitting with the great-great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker, Miss Alilia Bundles. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Alilia. How are you feeling today? I'm delighted to be with you, Brandon. All right. And how are you liking Orlando? It's much warmer here than where I live in Washington, D.C. It's lovely to, uh, to see the sunshine. All right. And is this your first time in in Orlando? No, I came to Orlando just like so many people to go to Disney World many years ago. (laughs) And I've been back at least a couple of times. Right, right. But not in a long time. Okay. So yesterday you were the guest speaker at the annual John T. Washington Lecture Series for Africana Studies. Can you talk about how uh, you got invited to to come and speak? I was invited by Dr. Fawn Gordon, the director of the Africana Studies program, because we have known each other since we were little girls. And she knows about my research on my great-great-grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker, and thought this would be a good uh, approach to talking about the important work of Dr. Washington. So I tried to weave some of the themes of his life with some of the research that I've done about Madam C.J. Walker. So And so I did attend the lecture last night, and uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, and you talked a little bit about it last night, was sort of how you got into uh, studying your family's history. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, when I was growing up in Indianapolis, going to really great public schools, history um, was taught in such a way that it did not include women and people of color. And even though I was a really good student and got A's in history, I, really, it, I didn't really love history. Mm-hmm. And it was years later when I began to see a more multidimensional view of American history that I became fascinated with history. And I really began to see it through the lens of my family. But when I was in high school, in my history book, my American history book, the only time black people were mentioned was in reference to slavery. And I had this distinct memory of being, if not the only one of the only black students in my class, and reading a paragraph that said, uh, Negro slaves were contented, and giving the message that it was better to be enslaved than to be free and left to your own devices. And I carried that memory for years, and it just always made me feel humiliated whenever I thought about it. And some a couple of years ago, I was writing an essay for a book called The Burden, The Enduring Legacy of Slavery. And I wanted to write about that experience. And one of my friends uh, at the Ed School at Harvard found the textbook that had been taught in my high school. She found the copy of it, sent me the section, and it in fact said, slaves were contented. And that told me this is why I didn't love history, because I knew that was a lie, but I didn't have the resources and the research to challenge it at the time. And I realized that my grandfather was really the person who gave me a different perspective, even though I didn't know what to do with that at at the time, because 
His grandfather had been um, elected to the state legislature in Arkansas during Reconstruction. His, grandfa his grandfather's mother had been freed um, by her slave-owning family in 1835 after a lawsuit. And there was resistance. The resistance was never taught in my high school. And so those stories, as I began to really learn the fuller picture of American history, I became interested in history. And being able to write about my great-great-grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker, her daughter, Alelia Walker, my grandmother, May, I've been able to write history in the way I wish it had been written for me. Starting with pre-Civil War, going through uh, World War II, I've been able to look at it through the lens uh, from the perspective of black women, but also giving a fuller picture of American history. Okay. And so uh, at the talk yesterday, and, and uh, you did a phenomenal job, by the way. Um, Thank you. you. There were a lot of pictures that you showed in your presentation. And one of the things I noticed was how um, uh, Madam C.J. Walker, you know, how so many photographs, she was in so many photographs. And you talk about her business uh, savvy. Can you just talk about the overall legacy uh, of Madam C.J. Walker and since you know the since you mm -hmm. know the history so well? She really was very conscious of advertising. She was very conscious of image. And we know with things like Instagram now, the power of a photograph. And at a time when she started her company in 1906, you know, there was no television, there was no internet, there were no computers. And, but what people did have was uh, they had newspapers, um, they had artwork, and they could see images. And those images had a tremendous amount of power, especially for African Americans, because in general, African American images of African Americans in a positive light were not really readily available in the media of the time, in the newspapers. So what she presented as she traveled around went on what she called a stereopticon, which was like the PowerPoint, but on glass slides and a projector, was giving people images that were positive, things to aspire to. So she knew the power of images, and she used those images to promote her company. I think her overall legacy for me is that she was a pioneer of the modern hair care industry, which is now a multi-billion dollar international industry. But just as important, she became a millionaire, but for me just as important, and maybe even more important, is that she used her money, she used her influence to try to make her community better. She provided a credential uh, as a beauty culturist, a sales agent for the women who worked for her. She provided jobs for black professionals. She helped those women who worked for her make enough money that they didn't have to be maids and domestics, which were the only jobs really available to black women at the time. Those women were able to educate their children and buy homes and contribute to their communities. So this woman who was born Sarah Breed Love on the same plantation in Delta, Louisiana, where her parents had been enslaved, by the time she died at 51, in her mansion in Westchester County, New York, the wealthiest community in America, had transformed her life and had used her money to make a difference as a philanthropist, a patron of the arts, a political activist, an educator. The, a couple of weeks before she died, she pledged $5,000 to the NAACP's anti-lynching fund because to, make, to try to make lynching a federal crime. And for me, she's kind of Black Lives Matter 1.0. She used her wealth to make a difference. 
And so, uh, as I understand, you have uh, published a few books. Mm -hmm. And so, can you talk a little bit about uh, your most recent work, uh, On on Her Own Ground? Sure. So, On Her Own Ground actually was my second book. My first book was a young adult biography of Madam Walker that came out in 91, part of the Chelsea House Black Americans of Achievement series. It was the first book, believe it or not, written about Madam Walker. But, you know, for many years in America, the, the publishing industry really was not interested in publishing things about women and people of color <laughs> beyond a few authors each year. Mm-hmm. So that 1991 book was the first biography of Madam Walker, even though it was written for young adults. On Her Own Ground, uh, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker was published by Scribner in 2001. And then I wrote another, an Arcadia history book. People probably are familiar with that because they have the sepia color covers and they're about neighborhoods and towns. And I did that book a few years ago. And then I wrote another young adult book that came out last year called All About Madam C.J. Walker. And I'm working on my fifth book called The Joy Goddess of Harlem, Alelia Walker and the Harlem Renaissance, Madam Walker's Daughter who uh, persuaded her to move to New York in 1913. So I'm writing about about her life. On Her Own Ground is the um, real comprehensive biography of Madam Walker. I think, I hope, interesting to students of history because it's got a lot of end notes um, and a lot of information that really puts her within the context of her times between the Civil War and her death in 1919, right after the end of World War I. So I try to do the scope of American history, both placing her uh, in the context of what it was like to be a black woman during that period of time, but also the many famous people she knew, from Ida B. Wells Barnett to W.E.B. Du Bois to Booker T. Washington. And that book, I'm happy to say, is in development as a Netflix series starring Octavia Spencer, which will be, which will air in early 2020. Um, So, in the talk yesterday, um, you talked a lot about uh, Madam C.J. Walker uh, as a philanthropist, and she, uh, she she donated a lot of money to a lot of different uh, organizations. Can you talk about sort of where you think that that derived from? I, I love that question because it, it to to know that she at one point was a person who needed and who was helped by others. Mm-hmm. And I think her philanthropy grew out of her early life when she was a poor washerwoman struggling to raise her child in St. Louis in the 1890s. And it really was the women of St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church who embraced her, who reached out to her, who began to give her a vision of herself as something other than an illiterate washerwoman. She was part of the choir. She sang in the choir. She um, was a member of the Might M-I-T-E, for those who may not know that from the Bible, the Might Missionary Society. And that was the group of women in the church who were contributing to others. So even though she was very poor herself, she contributed a few pennies every week to help others. And so I think that tradition of both being helped by people, of feeling that she really had uh, been fortunate to become so successful, she wanted to make sure that she was giving back. So through her life, as she began to make more money, I think she began to see that her products and her company in some ways were a means to an end, that they enabled other women, empowered other women to be able to have their own economic independence. And that began, that grew into her philosophy about philanthropy, that she loved music. And so 
She um, supported young musicians. She loved art, and she commissioned paintings by others. As she became more politically active, she used that money to support the anti-lynching movement, to speak out um, on behalf of uh, African-American soldiers who were fighting in World War One to raise money for war bonds. So she really did see money became um, a tool to make her community better. Okay, and uh, as we sort of bring this discussion to a close, I, I do want to ask you this. Um, as someone um, who has gone on and studied their own family's history, sort of what kind of advice would you give to someone else, you know, try, looking to recover, you know, their family's history? Because, you know, that can be sort of challenging, you know, what sort of where do you begin? And so what what kind of advice would you give to someone who sort of starting, starting from, from nothing, essentially? Right. I'm so glad you asked me that because I think everybody's family is interesting. You know, I'm fortunate to have some famous family members, but I'm as fascinated by the family members who are not famous because they all are part of who we are. They're the ancestors, you know, are speaking to us. And I think they made so many sacrifices for us and they had so many dreams for us that I sort of feel an obligation to learn their story. I think anybody who's seen uh, Skip Gates's um, show on PBS, you know, people discover all kinds of things about family members they didn't know and they realize the path that has been laid for them. But there are many ways to go about beginning to explore your family history. People think, well, they're, you know, they're not famous, so there's not going to be any information about him, them. But there always is material in the census. You can start with the census. Ancestry.com has made it very easy for people. There's, in, there's information in military records. Uh, there's information at the courthouse in the town where your family is from, where they bought property, or they may have been property, you know, or there's there are things that you can read about the period of time when they were living, and you begin to put them in context. And then surprisingly, people think, well, there must not be anything in the newspaper about my family because they're not famous. But now that there's newspapers.com, uh, ProQuest Historical Newspaper Database, which most campuses have access to. I think many people would be surprised if they put their grandparents' names in, their great-grandparents' names in, that they might find a mention. It might just be the marriage license, because they used to put, publish that in the daily, the daily newspapers. But sometimes in the church news, sometimes in the society column, that there are, that family members turn up. I have great fun doing this for my friends. They'll give me the name of the great-grandparent, and I'll look it up, and I'm like, well, you know, I found four articles that mention your family member. So there are many ways for people to go about beginning to construct uh, their family history. Most um, major branches of public libraries in major cities have a genealogy room, and the people who run the genealogy room are often able to give to give really great clues. But I think, you know, perhaps the the first step is to interview the oldest members of your family. Now everybody, every kid, every young person can take out their phone and do an interview with grandma, uh, with great grandma, with a great aunt, and find out everything you can and start to create a family tree. But I, so I would say that, you know, the sort of the key elements for beginning to do your family research, start by interviewing the oldest relatives in your family. 
Do not waste time because when they go, you have lost an encyclopedia's worth of work. And then once you know the names and you try to get as many birthplaces and as many maiden names, because you need to find the, the mother's maiden name, and then you begin to know the names of people, then you begin to search for them through newspapers.com, ProQuest um, Historical Newspaper Database, courthouses, public records, ancestry.com. All right. I want to thank you, Alilia Bundles, for coming in and, and, and talking with us today. And uh, that concludes this podcast. Thank you very much. That was Alilia Bundles talking with Brandon Nightingale about her presentation during the 2019 Dr. John T. Washington Lecture Series about her presentation called Raising Our Voices, Madam C.J. Walker's Legacy of Leadership, Activism, and Education. For Knight's History Cast, I'm Holly Baker. Please subscribe to this podcast to hear future interviews and conversations.